Hello friends, my name is Steve and we're here today to discuss The Purple Prince with some friends and the author, Josh Menkes. Thanks everyone for coming. Uh, Amanda, will you kick us off with an introduction, please? I would love to. I'm Amanda. My channel is Shelf Unstable. Uh, I read The Purple Prince uh, about August of last year and I'm really excited to talk to more people about it and hopefully get more people reading it. So excited to be here with the author, Jimmy and Steve. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to talk about this book. Mr. Uh, Mr. Nuts. Uh, my name is Jimmy Nuts, if, if you weren't aware, and uh, I have a little channel called The Fantasy Network where I did a review for The Purple Prince in a no-spoiler fashion uh, quite a few months ago now, and it is one that has stood out to me because it is one of my favorite self-pub books ever, in fact. Um, super imaginative, and we'll talk about a lot of that. And my hope is that we get some more people to uh, to check this out so we have more people to talk about and uh, to theorize with because I am rotten at theories, but I do believe that Purple Prince is right for uh, theories for the following book. So I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Steve, Sebastian, Amanda. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Awesome. I'm Sebastian. Hi, I'm Sebastian or Basti to my friends. You guys can call me whatever you like. Um yeah, I'm a writer. I'm also a father of two. And uh, yeah, I'm just do, doing my best here. Um, yeah, excited <laughs> to talk about this book. It's uh, It had a very long gestational period. Uh, I was working on this not consistently, but over the course of about eight years before it came out to the world. And it's wow. nice to kind of go and go back and uh, kind of, uh, yeah. To, to, to discuss it and pick it apart a little bit. Um, I've had some distance from it now. It sort of, it came out roughly a year ago and i haven't really been looking at it in that time i've just been i haven't really been writing a whole lot either i've been out of the kind of output and i've just been on input so i've just been been reading and 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 putting it aside so it's uh, it's going to be fun to kind of dive back in with you guys awesome eight so, years is quite a long yeah. time my God. long journey yeah honestly yeah um from like the first little nuggets of an idea in uh, yeah about 2014 um but it was on the back burner for a lot of those eight years I, I didn't i wasn't slaving away for eight consistent years um i wrote the first draft when i broke my arm in 2017 hmm. and then I, I polished it up to a publishable standard or near enough um when i lost my job during COVID. so uh it seems i need some sort of uh physical or financial crisis to uh to write so i'm just waiting on something a, a vehicle to run me over or something for me to, to write the second book but uh yeah we can arrange them now I mean... <laughs> please make it happen honestly i need it it seems i got this guy he did a number on alan um he... <laughs> oh. <laughs> is it the same guy that ran over stephen king maybe yeah yeah same guy actually it's in the family he that was his dad and uh they, they've done uh, wonderful work over there if <laughs> oh, they're pros. <laughs> Our friend uh, Rachel Morley is here. I'm determined not to miss the stream. Have I read the book? No. Have we even heard of it? Also, no. But I will maybe add it to the endless TBR, possibly. I want to turn a, that possibly into a probably. It'll be a yes. <laughs> <laughs> By the time we're done, uh, Benjamin. Hello, everyone. I I see Sebastian brought on brought an entourage. The cronies, if you will. If you will. Uh, tall Guy Reads just picked up a copy of this today. Really looking forward to finally diving into this one. 
And that's impressive because when you're that tall, picking up things, bending at the hips, it is not an easy task. A lot of energy to do that. <laughs> the bees and knees, thanks for coming. Cut to Seb staring longingly at ongoing traffic. Uh, be- bees, uh, actually, I believe, made some fan art for the Purple Prince. And oh, dude. Really incredible. That's amazing. Hey, Garrick. Is there any way that we can show Bees' artwork or if she's okay with that? Because I was, I guess it's kind of a spoiler. Maybe we can leave that to later in the video. But it's um, it's super cool. Is it uh, online somewhere? I can try and pull it up. Um, I don't know if she's got it like on a website or a blog or something. But there, there's in Jimmy's Discord. There's a there's like a, a JPEG of it. We I'm working maybe... on it. Okay, sweet. I think there's a there's a lot of fan art potential in this series, yes. I think. Uh, it's like very, very aesthetically pleasing, like the, the descriptions and the different lands and the colors and yeah. Uh, there's some good stuff that can happen. And especially uh, as the series goes on, Sebastian and the direction that I could see things going um, could get kind of weird. It's gonna get weird. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the visual thing, um, I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very visual reader and I guess almost as a consequence, a visual writer as well. I'm hmm. not quite sure entirely where that stems from, but I'm, I'm as, as Amanda and I were talking about recently um, on a Discord call, I, I'm, a, I'm like a big dreamer. I don't mean that in like I have ambitions to conquer the world. I mean, I'm a big dreamer and I dream a lot and have <laughs> like sleep paralysis and, um, and lucid dreaming and all that sort of thing. So uh, yeah, I've always been very informed by dreams and they have always been very vivid and had a lot of kind of like ripe, rich kind of visual detail. So maybe that kind of spills over into the writing a bit. But uh, yeah, I really see these places and I see these people. Yeah. Yeah. Carries over with the dream aspect too. I mean, the series is the river dream. And I don't think it's mm-hmm. a quite spoiler talk to say that dreams uh, play a pretty big role, it seems. Um, yeah. From making you go insane if you have them to other aspects yeah dreams as prophecy and uh yeah definitely i mean um i guess as someone who's always dreamed a lot i've really resonated with media that is very kind of dream heavy so whether it's something like uh like a twin peaks i don't know if you guys have watched Mm -hmm. that but there's like important important plot info gets delivered via dreams um, the whole dream aspect really gets ramped up in, in, in the, the most recent season of Twin Peaks. But um, yeah, uh, A Song of Ice and Fire, honestly, it might not sort of jump straight to your mind, but there's a lot of dream, dreaming and dream imagery in that in yeah. that series. Um, that stuff has always really just appealed to me in, in, in a very powerful way. So uh, yeah, it was kind of inevitable that when I was going to write something, if I was going to write something, it was going to kind of revolve around dreams in a big way. Yeah. Dreams are uh, a, a pretty excellent tool. I think a lot of times uh, when people hear about dreams, they think prophetic dreams or maybe a dream world, right? We have that in Wheel of Time. But one thing that mm-hmm. dreams can do, and I think that it is used like this in Purple Prince, it is also used this way in A Song of Ice and Fire, is actually to put an undercurrent um, in character development into play where a lot of times you can actually start to pull and make assumptions about people's relationships, maybe it might be, um, or just their overall desires from their dreams. 
um for instance you know uh to keep it spoiler for your purple prince but like Tyrion, for instance has a lot of dreams about riding dragons and burning down cassie rock and you know those uh those things i think say a lot about his relationship with his family and more importantly his like dad so dreams are like really really versatile and they're one of my favorite things that people can use so uh, I love that aspect of Purple Prince. I think that you do really, really good dream dream sequences. And I also do have the picture that bees drew uh, for the fan art. I think right. I think we could show it because um, it's a spoiler. But like, if you don't know, I don't think you would know. No would context agree? spoiler. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's okay. go. All right. Let me. Uh, I think I can share. All right. There you go. Yeah, and then if you put if you put that in to the stream, I think it'll show it. Boom. There we go. I mean, first Boom. off, Bees is super talented. This is amazing. Uh, secondly, this is the type of imagery that you can expect if you have an imagination, which I don't. Uh, <laughs> in Purple Prince, there's so many things that are just like over the top, but not in the cheesy, corny way. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, what Sebastian was saying earlier about getting inputs right now uh, for writing, uh, I think in Purple Prince, there's some of like you can see where his influences come from, uh, mm -hmm. like China Mieville, I think is a, a huge one. Uh, we've we've definitely talked about really? how much that author and uh, his work resonates with Sebastian and me. And ever since and I think Jimmy read Perdido Street Station, Steve, I don't know yes. if you've read any China Mieville, but uh, mm -hmm. I think Sebastian wears that influence very well in uh, the purple prince, um, just with his descriptions and, uh, kind of the weirdness, but it's still, the series still has like a, has like that cozy kind of like epic fantasy feel to it while still being like really weird and imaginative. I think that's a, a really good balance that you hit in this book. Mm -hmm. oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Cause, uh, yeah, I, I definitely started the book, um, when I was at my sort of peak, a song of ice and fire, uh, sort of um so i guess that shows in sort of this being kind of like a i guess it's not quite medieval sort of post medieval maybe sort of like 17th 18th century technologically wise um fantasy world but you know with like all the different like the families and the the political intrigue and that sort of thing yeah um yeah it definitely shows through through that um speaking of yeah, the, the the dreams and stuff as well about how like dreams can be used to for characterization purposes um i mentioned briefly in that little forward thing i have at the front of the book i don't know if anyone even read that but I, I wanted to include it anyway where i talk about how the first idea of like starting way back at the beginning like the cosmogony and theogony like the birth of the universe birth of the gods that came when i was studying greek myth at university my first year um and uh yeah a lot of the sort of analysis of greek myth we were doing was kind of like jungian philosophy and i think there's there's a jung quote which is super good i'm going to butcher it but it's something along the line of like understanding dreams is like the silk road to understanding consciousness it's just like so much about a person is revealed by how they dream and what they dream so i think that 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 definitely showed but um yeah i think i definitely wear my influences on my sleeve i don't think that's a that's a that's a bad thing um yeah, I definitely had a huge inspiration from reading uh, China Miedel, um, uh while uh, this book was in its kind of gestational period. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of, yeah, the sort of the things I was reading, the shows I was watching, music I was listening to, it all kind of snuck through there in some subtle ways and in some like overt ways. 
where like sometimes I'm pretty uh pretty 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 frank with my influences when i'll just like name drop you know gardens of the moon or something like that but um <laughs> yeah they're fun to find as people that read you know a lot of your inspirations uh it's always fun to find find those easter eggs in books so yeah yeah <laughs> i'm definitely one who uh appreciates those things and when people are like students of the genre i'm a much bigger fan of that i always feel a little suspect whenever i talk to someone like yeah i haven't read a lot of fantasy and i'm just like ah, it gets harder it, it's it's kind of a double-edged sword because it's a little harder to uh stand out i think if you don't know mm. what has been done but at the same time maybe not knowing the constraints of the genre open you up i think that you do a good job of making your own thing while still feel feeling like you've read a ton of the fantasy genre which you have mm. um like for instance like your multiple povs which we have a ton of characters here but angelo myla uh benedict raywin hopefully i'm pronouncing all those right they're fairly normal names so i think i might be you a Okay, you got three out of four. On hello, I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm guessing. <laughs> um, hello. Mila? No, um, it's it's Mila. Yeah, but other than that, Mila. Okay, Mila. I I I'm sorry. So Mila, With our powers uh, combined, Jimmy. We got him. <laughs> <laughs> I felt uh, very much a song of ice and fire, though, in the way that you were flexing the povs. Uh, these people were not all in the same locations. You had some people very very far away, and you know I had my my Kickstarter map out. Um, you know, I was trying to pinpoint where people were and you do something, uh, this is kind of like away from the book, but something really dope about this map is that you have the location of the character represented by a symbol. And I thought that that was super cool. And I have to imagine that maybe in your fantasy time that you maybe busted out a map once or twice and maybe did the strings of like where people were going. Yeah, it's, it's very important for me. To have kind of like a geographical sense of a fantasy world um i can't tell you how many times during reading the second apocalypse i clicked to the map at the back just to see quite where he was talking about where these characters were or he's talking about a you know a, some general hailing from you know hi anon i wanted to know where the hell that was yeah it's, it's very important for me. i guess it, it's kind of an extension maybe of that kind of me being a very visual reader i need to like very much like visually conceptualize and have like a clear image in my head of what's going on and that definitely extends to the map yeah where uh yeah a fantasy book without a map is a a sorry thing in my opinion <laughs> particularly if it's kind of sprawling international kind of story i'm with you it's just a whole other level of immersion whenever you can bust it out and your map is excellent i don't know who did it for you but it's one of the better fantasy maps that i've seen without a doubt thank you um i actually made that myself um oh, wow. i did you yeah put there's a I, I did, yeah. There's a there's a map making uh, program like a PC application called Wonderdrop. It's one of the couple of big map making programs. Um, I made it in there. It took me hours and hours. Um, I can, yeah, I can claim credit for everything in there except for like the like the the um, that the assets like the free assets that like the DRM free assets that came with the program, which I used for like the, the mountains, the trees, the ruins, and stuff. But um. It was also a nice opportunity to again show off uh, some of that wonderful artwork that has been made for me for the series like um you'd see like the character symbols that you were showing before and also how like each nation on the map has its own sort of coat of arms these images uh, show up in the physical book but um, it, it was nice to show them again there so uh yeah the art no, in I'm... this book is so good too yeah like 
Oh man, yeah. The fact that Beautiful. you put portraits of of the characters before their POV chapter was just like more. I would love for more people to do something like that. Um, the quality. Each have the, a, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was saying the quality oh, is just absurd of this book. Yeah, uh, it's great. Yeah, and along with the character portraits, they have like their own symbol that starts the mm -hmm. POV chapter. So you know whose chapter it is. It's just really cool. Like it's all yep. it's all so well laid out and artistic. Um, especially not that there's a, like any like self pub versus traditional pub, but for a self published book. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just so polished and so well put together and impressive. Um, so, so glad to hear you say that. Um, yeah, there was a lot of, uh, I, I I'm glad that it has sort of, I think, quite a cohesive feel and aesthetic to it, given the fact that this is, I mean, the, the, the book I wrote myself, of course, but, um, there were quite a few sort of creative hands on on, on deck there. Um, the character portraits that appear at the in the first chapter of each POV, uh, those were um, done by uh, one gentleman um, from uh, Indonesia, and then there was the cover art was done by someone else from Sri Lanka. The symbols for the characters and the nations that was done by a girl here in Iceland where I live, and the gods were. Uh, drawn by yet yet another person um I, i've got the gods here actually maybe you want to show those on stream i think these are super cool artworks um these were like kickstarter ext extras for people that backed this project but um hmm. yeah these yeah i'm super happy with these um they're so cool yeah <laughs> <laughs> right i i think they're pretty cool um yeah they, they were done by a, a gentleman named julian who is um a, a polish gentleman living in Brazil, I believe. Um, and so, yeah, there's a, a lot of people from all different corners of the world all kind of coming together and helping me with like the kind of the visual side of things. And uh, for, yeah, how many books were involved in this broth? I think it's pretty, pretty coherent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would agree. I hope that's fair to say. But, um, yeah. Souls, Bloodland references. See, I don't, I don't know what what Ben's talking about there. I'm just sorry. I'm just gonna. I just need to like comb my eyebrows slightly. <laughs> um, yeah, this is like a little brush I have here. But um, yeah, Souls and Bloodborne. I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not like a huge fan. I would say, but, um, they're okay. I, I might have played them once or twice, watched the stream or something. But, um, yeah, no, that's that's another huge influence. That's definitely <laughs> definitely in there. Um, yeah, yeah. Now those games definitely uh, inspired me a lot on sort of a narrative level and, and aesthetic level. Um, so uh, yeah, the, the, those definitely this. And again, with Bloodborne, it's just not really a spoiler for the game, but that's another. That's a game that has a lot of sort of like dreaming in it and dream realities and that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, so again, that's a piece of media that really resonated with me. And uh, yeah, linked itself to to this kind of story. And Rachel, my college didn't offer mythology studies. I feel ripped off. And again, it'd probably have destroyed my love of myths. That depend that really depends on your, your lecturer, I think. I had this this amazing gentleman who um he was pushing seventy, I think. And my mum, who was born in what, nineteen sixty-three, she had him when she was at university. So he has been in this game for a long time and his uh his experience, he, he's just like a Greek myth veteran. You can see like his his level of, of deep knowledge and expertise and just enthusiasm decades of it just really showed through in his lectures so i'm um, i'm very lucky to have had him 
I think, yeah, it's a lot of these subjects, a lot of this kind of academic content is really hinged upon whether you have a good teacher or not, because they can really like make it or break it for you. I think I've been very fortunate, like throughout throughout my kind of academic career to have had yeah really great teachers who have really inspired me. You know, when I was taking uh, English lit and philosophy and uh, and and classical studies, myth and stuff at, at university. My, my lectures were all fantastic. And I mm. think without them, I don't know if this book would exist. Yeah, because it does go beyond just writing, right? It, go, it goes into all different types of of um, the brain, uh, different subjects too. Um, when did you first think like, I'm going to be a writer? Was it whenever you were in university? Um. No, uh, it was when I was about three or four years old, <laughs> um, believe it or not, uh, there was, I, I had this uh, instant young uh, attraction to writing and also to illustrating. Um, my favorite thing to do all day, every day was to uh, write stories and illustrate them. Um, I, I, again, I mentioned in this little forward thing at the, in the front of Purple Prince that no one probably read, but that's fine, um, where I, I had a character <laughs> called Pajama Man who was like this like Jewish superhero who wore pajamas. And um, I've been yeah, writing and illustrating Pajama Man comics since I was a very young lad. Um, my mom actually came from New Zealand, which is where I was born. I came and visited me here in Iceland uh, to meet my, my second child, my daughter, um, last summer. And she brought some... Uh, I'll, I'll just see if I can show you a little something. Let's see. Yeah, this is, yeah, Pajama Man, the Armageddon trilogy. Like, this is stuff <laughs> I was writing and illustrating from a very young age. Um, uh, yeah, and I saw, over time, I kind of phased out the illustration aspect and just compensated by having very kind of, I guess, visual writing, if that's fair to say. Um, but yeah, I was always writing stories about, about, pajama men and about robots and about aliens and about all sorts of stuff. I guess it was when I uh, saw the Lord of the Rings films um, that really kind of awoke a love for fantasy in me. Um, I had actually, it was, it was tied up a lot with me being from New Zealand because uh, at the time of the first film coming out, uh, Fellowship of the Ring in 2001, I was, uh, I was six years old and uh, I had recently left New Zealand for a five-year period, my family, we relocated to the, the literal other side of the globe um, to move to Wales. Um, mm. And it was an awkward time for me to move. Maybe it was a little bit easier for my little brother, who's a bit younger, or my sister, who's a bit older. But for me, it was like I had a, one year of primary school and I had like sort of just started to, you know, make my first friends and these sorts of things. And then we just got relocated to the other side of the planet. And that was very, very difficult. And I really missed New Zealand and really wanted to go back. And I kind of got an opportunity to do that, as cheesy as it sounds, by watching the Lord of the Rings movies, like not only watching these amazing films and this amazing story, which I had never heard of prior to seeing them, but um, getting to see New Zealand up on the big screen, it was kind of this sort of weird homesick thing tied in with this like burgeoning love for fantasy. And yeah, from then, I think all of my writing had a kind of like a fantasy bent to it. There was, there was always a dragon or a wizard or a dark lord or something. And that kind of, that never really went away. The, uh, the boogeyman aspect, right? Yeah. I mean, Captain Underpants, eat your heart out. 
<laughs> Pajama Man's here to take over. Over ten in the Blue King. I Shit. love it. <laughs> <laughs> and what was your experience like with the Kickstarter? What? How did that come to be? How did you decide to go that route? Well, um, I, I was a very, uh, I, I, I was a very. I was very keenly aware of Kickstarter, um, partly because, as you maybe can see in the sort of the lower shelf of this uh, IKEA piece of furniture behind me, you can see a, a fraction of the board games I own. I'm, I'm a big board gamer and a sucker for cool miniatures and Kickstarter goodies and stuff like that, which I guess really inspired me with uh, commissioning stuff like this. But um, yeah, so I was I was on Kickstarter a lot and backing Kickstarters and both for the products I would actually receive um, and also just for this kind of, I guess, this idea of supporting independent creative projects just really appealed to me. Um, yeah, I guess through using Kickstarter to back board games and such, I became aware of there being maybe a bit of a burgeoning uh, sort of publishing aspect to Kickstarter, like quite a few books being published there. I mean, there's a lot of stuff on there that's like LGBTQ stuff and there's like romance novels and there's, there's there's all sorts of stuff and there's a lot of like lit rpg and sort of kind of i guess sort of niche stuff um but there's also quite a lot of uh just epic fantasy books as well and i had seen some in the sort of the year prior to me running my kickstarter which was done in sort of october 2021 something like that september 2021 um i'd seen a lot of them do very well and it was very uh very inspiring and encouraging for me i mean there are some uh authors who are quite established that still use kickstarter like this what's his name kevin j sullivan something like that he, michael j sullivan yeah yep. yeah 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 right yeah yeah he, he he's backed a few books he's done a few books on there i know brandon sanderson famously had his uh record-breaking blockbusting uh kickstarter project um so yeah it, it, it's 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 a it's a really good website i think for these both both of these bigger writers but also some of these these smaller ones as well someone you know releasing their debut novel on there and them not only meeting their funding goal but sometimes quite surpassing it um that was very inspiring to me so i thought to kind of yeah um generate the capital to sort of print this book and and distribute it and yada 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 i thought kickstarter felt like a a, a good place for that um so yeah, I think um, yeah, it was my first time. It was my first time in many regards. This was the first book I ever wrote, discounting Pajama Man. Um, this was the first Kickstarter campaign I ever ran, and uh, I think that shows there were some things I definitely could have done differently. And um, yeah, as far as like fulfillment of the uh, rewards go for like getting the books that people bought to the Kickstarter backers. Um, I maybe couldn't have picked a worse time because it kind of happened all during COVID and uh, yeah. I was getting printing quotes for like full print, you know, a hundred copies of the hardback, hundred copies of the paperback from one company. And then I was like, okay, great. I know how much I, I should charge then per book for on the Kickstarter. And then the Kickstarter runs. And then by the time the Kickstarter has mm. finished and I've collected those funds, the price has gone up considerably printing costs as well as yeah postage costs as well um yeah it was it was it was it was tough it was uh it was a hell of a lot of work it felt like almost a full-time job uh 
running that Kickstarter campaign and fulfilling it just with, you know, there's so many things you need to do. It's not just, you know, writing the book itself, but you have to sort of have kind of like a social media presence and, and, you know, make these posts on Kickstarter to kind of engage with the backers and ask them what they'd like to see and kind of, yeah. And then I have to be, you know, making phone calls and sending emails to try and get it to happen physically and uh yeah running ad campaigns and stuff and i'm 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 not that kind of thinker i'm sort of yeah i just drift off into space and daydream during the day and legit dream during the night so i'm, I'm not really kind of like a numbers <laughs> excel kind of minded guy um it, it, this is very alien to me this whole idea of calculating kind of cost per click and which revenue streams are most whatever like that that's just not how my brain works so uh that was a real challenge for me. Um, I had to kind of step out of, I had to not only do the kind of the creative side of things, but writing the book and kind of uh, coordinating the other input, you know, with these these different illustrators and artists, but I also had to do the kind of business side of things too, um, which is not in my nature. Um, maybe uh, if I can afford to with the next book, which I plan to also self-publish and to, to kickstart, based on um, my, my, my first attempt going quite well and, you know, my funding goal being reached and even surpassed a little, um, I might see if I can bring somebody else on if I can afford it just to kind of take care of some of that stuff for me because definitely I, I like the idea of, yeah, being the dude that does the creative side of things and not have to worry about that other stuff because uh, it doesn't interest me and I find it extremely difficult. And Lemon commented, your communication was great, though. We were happy to wait. Congratulations on the book. Oh, thanks, Lemon. And Rachel had a question. Any tips for running a successful Kickstarter? What sort of sorcery do we need to dabble in? <laughs> um, hmm. I would say it's kind of like a soft magic system, as in you don't really understand quite what's going on. I, I, I don't know what sort of lightning in a bottle thing. Like, I, a lot of people said to me afterwards, like, Wow, who who like I I, I did a, a Reddit giveaway on like R slash fantasy for like giving away five copies of the book, and um someone commented being like, who are you? Like, you wrote this book and you ran this Kickstarter campaign and it funded like that's not unheard of, but like that's 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 really impressive. What what did you do to make that happen? And I I don't really know. I don't want to kind of humble brag, but I yeah, it just kind of worked out okay. Um. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, the artists that I brought on to help with the kind of visual side of things really helped, you know, like people say, yeah. don't judge a book by its cover. But I think having a good book cover really mm. helps get people excited and to kind of take it seriously, particularly with self-pub, like if, if, the, if the cover was some sort of poorly photoshopped, I don't know, werewolf with abs or something, you know, it kind of like, <laughs> it, it doesn't, it kind of can confirm some of the... Uh, people's negative preconceptions of, of self-pub, but I, um, I, I was very, very lucky with how good the cover was. I'm very, very happy with the cover. And I think the artist who, who created that for me, um, Kamika Dilchan, I think he's incredibly talented. Um, and uh, I think that helped enormously because, uh, yeah. Oh, thank you, Garrick. Yeah. Um, oh, glad to, okay, I've got two backers. That's, uh, that's, that's uh, three. That's us. Oh, sweet. Four. I'm on that's the fence. Start, no, I'm just kidding. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I would say the artistry and, and all of that definitely goes a long way because one of the things about self pub that I think is awesome is the fact that you have more creative control to do those type of things. You're not going to be stuck with a big, you know, um, purple prints and just text and like a dove in the background. You know what I mean? Like you're not going to get stuck right. with something that's just so uninspired. Um, and the artwork I think fits the book too. And that, that's something right. that doesn't always happen. Uh, I have read many, many, uh, self-published books. They have the dankest art, but I'm like, that doesn't feel like the vibe I got from the story. And you're almost like, mm -hmm. I want to read that story though. Like I want to read the one that the art looks like. Um, <laughs> and I do think that yeah, your artist did do a good job of capturing the tone very, very well. Uh, thank you. Yeah. I, I, I guess I was, um, probably a bit of a pain to work with for all of these artists because uh, I had such a specific vision and they would send me things being like, is this okay? And I'd be like, no, 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 can you, can you change that? And you like make mm -hmm. Angelo's stumps of his horn slightly smaller. They look too devilish. I don't want him to come across as a bad guy. I want him to come, come across and here. And I like had this lots of finicky little uh, points of feedback for them. So I think I was probably an absolute nightmare to work with. Um, with these guys, <laughs> but uh, maybe it, it paid off in, in, in some way that, uh, yeah, whenever something came to me, I'm like, it doesn't look quite right. And they were always very patient with me, thankfully, to, uh, yeah, get it to look like it, it does now. But, uh, nice. Yeah. Nice. So should we get into the into the book? Let's do it. Well, first, I, I want to start by saying I love the prologue. It's one of my favorite prologues. That was fantastic. Very good. Thank you. Yeah, it's um, funnily enough, the prologue is one of the last chapters I wrote. Hmm. Oh, one so you wrote very, that very Uh, yeah. Well, okay. So as as I mentioned uh, previously, um, the first draft of this book was written entirely when I, I broke my my arm, my my wrist in in twenty seventeen. Um. I was pretty high on um, pain medication, which maybe explains some of those dream sequences. But um, yeah, I, 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 I wrote kind of a start to finish. <laughs> I wrote kind of a start to finish version of this book, uh, which was pretty bad. But the kind of the, the, the bones of the story were there. But um, it originally, yeah, it began very, very differently. Um, originally, the if you can believe it, the prologue was the chapter where we're, we're just in full spoiler territory now, right? Yeah. Um, the warned. first, <laughs> the first chapter was the chapter where Neela and Co break into the Tower of the Sun, hmm. which I don't remember how late that happens in the finished product, but I think it's like here we are, uh, page two hundred and four. So that was originally page one. Um, wow! Wow! Yeah, yeah. It uh, yeah. This this story really grew in the telling, I guess you could say. But uh, yeah, originally it started because, I don't know, I just, it's it's the cheesiest cliche. It's so pretentious that like this people, creative types talk about where they feel like, oh, I, I, I didn't write this song. I didn't write this book. It was just, it was beamed to me from somewhere in the ether. But like, honestly, like this thing kind of <laughs> wrote itself in a big way. Like I just, I just got some strong images in my head of like, okay, there's a group and they're trying to break into this tower and they need a prophecy. And there's this girl and her name is Mila. It's definitely Mila. There's no question about that. I don't need to sit and mull on what would be an appropriate name. That's, that is just her name. It was like, I was discovering the stuff that's so pretentious, but yeah. 
and I just had this idea of, 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 of this kind of almost like a James Bond style opening, kind of like this action heist sequence, but fantasy. Um, and uh, yeah, after I, I wrote that, I then came up with a, a chapter that occurred earlier uh, where Mila left home for the final time, closed the door of the tailoring shop that her father owns and walked out into the desert, never to return. Um, I thought like if characters know Mila a bit better, then they will be more emotionally invested in her fate in this James Bond style heist sequence. Like, you know, cause if I just start with characters breaking into this like high security place and the stakes are really high and people are going to die. Like it's, um, if you don't know who any of these characters are, I think it takes a better writer than me to get you to give a shit. Um, so I thought, okay, let's meet Mila a little bit first. So I wrote that, and that was the that was the prologue for a very long time. And then I did a kind of I was reading Dune at the time and all of its wonderful sequels, and I thought, oh, what if the prologue is like an in-world document, a transcript of an interview, which this actually appears in the book. There's an interview when Mila arrives in the cult headquarters of the Eye, the, the Fallen's headquarters. She has a meeting with the Drana Worm, the the pale lady. And uh, she is sort of grilled and interviewed and being like, who the hell are you? Why do you want to join us? What are you doing here? You should go home. You're the daughter of a tailor. This is like a cult of terrorists and murderers trying to bring down an empire. You're just a girl, like get the fuck out of here. Um, I, that, that interview originally appeared in the book at the very beginning as sort of like a transcript written in italics, like it was some in-world document that had been presented, um, which I was a big fan of at the time. Um, when I returned to it um, during COVID, I was less hot on it. I thought it would benefit with some of the kind of internal monologue and stuff. Again, this was all, all, all of these changes I made to the very beginning of the book. What I was like, okay, here's the entry point. It was all to flesh out the world more and let the reader invest in the characters more. Um, and then, event then I wrote a, a, a different prologue, which I then scrapped which was from the point of view of some Dawnbringer chasing Endymion skulls uh, through the through the, the Dernick wilderness. Um, that was quite a cool chapter, I thought, but in the end, it kind of didn't really need to be there. And then finally, very, very late in the piece, like I'm talking just a, a, a two or three months before the book went to print, I was like, okay, I'm going to... I, I kept rewinding. I kept going further back in, in the story and, and sort of the, the, the timeline of the world of like, okay, when, when are we going to start? When are we going to, are we going to start in this heist sequence? No, 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 we need to know Mila better from her childhood or maybe from this transcript. Oh, okay, okay, okay. There's a lot of references to Uriel Fade and the Estrian Rebellion, how that was something of an inciting event and sort of dictated a lot of things, you know, it dictated uh, Benedict, the Imperial Prince being betrothed to Ophelia Fade, um, the sort of walking on eggshells kind of uh, political ambience of that this book kind of takes place in. Um, a lot of the stuff is informed by Ariel Fade's rebellion. I'm like, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write a sort of Song of Ice and Fire style uh, prologue where it's from the point of view of one character that dies at the end. And I'll write it from the point of view of Ariel Fade at sort of a crucial point during her rebellion. And yeah. And that's the point I settled on. I also considered going back even further and 
do I do I have like a longer prologue and where I talk about sort of like the beginning and middle of her rebellion or there came had to come a point where I just said no 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 I can't keep rewinding or I'm going to end up in the beginning the gods were made kind of thing but um finally uh, I settled on at the, the 11th hour I settled on this Ariel Fade prologue and I think that might have been the right call at least it gave me an opportunity to sort of uh really explore the dream aspects of this world which are very crucial not not immediately to any of the four main point of view characters uh mila a bit but um yeah um it gave me an opportunity to explore that and kind of set up a bigger scale conflict um it gave me the opportunity to sort of introduce a large existential sort of centuries in the making threat that would sort of hopefully if i if i pulled it off kind of act as kind of this sort of like looming sense of impending doom this is what we really should be worrying about kind of thing that would kind of hang over the much more sort of small potato stuff of the of the subsequent chapters so yeah that's what i that's what i settled on and yeah i'm quite proud of that chapter um it is not really spoiler to say that the, the vein that's in of it being like really like high stakes kind of end of the world stuff god's coming back oh shit kind of stuff like that is where the series is headed i would say um question for seb antlers and and and, and antlers what like wh why do the estrians have antlers um <laughs> you, you want to elaborate ben and I'll, I'll i'll get back to you oh but yeah that that prologue's great i think it's a like you said a good spot between like all the what came before and then what we're about to experience and then introduce uh some of the kind of hooks of the weird things in the story i think do we meet the revenants in the prologue or at least the idea yeah. of an undead something being controlled uh which is probably one of the first things that i think of of like the elements that i thought were really unique and interesting in the purple prince uh the revenants um yes. And then I want to like way later in the book, but I want to know what's going on in that room, in that tavern with the, the noises being mm. made behind the mysterious door. Um, but yeah, the, the revenants and then uh, the gods and yeah, there's some, the antlers, of course, uh, the mm -hmm. dreams, all of that's uh, really kind of baited in at the, in that beginning prologue. So I think that's a, a good choice for a spot to start. Oh, I'm glad, glad you think so. Yeah. I, um, I think I definitely tease a lot in that prologue. I kind of offer little glimmers of what may be to come. Um, and I guess that's just something that, yeah, in different pieces of media, different books and different shows and stuff that really resonates with me. I say what you want about it. I love Lost and all of the kind of the question marks that are raised there. Um, Song of Ice and Fire, again, there's like so many mysteries that kind of very vaguely hint at that and allow a fan base without any new content for many years to kind of go full, full tinfoil and pick apart um yeah I, th I yeah i i i hoped that i accomplished what i was trying to do which was yeah kind of yeah lay some some fish hooks out some sort of uh points of interest for the reader to kind of keep in mind as as the story progresses but um yeah i just now now all i have to do is kind of deliver on those those hints and those promises because otherwise they don't really mean anything but um, yeah, I guess that's my that's my my task going forward. 
I was immediately drawn to the revenants. I love necromancy in the first place, but also seeing uh, Mila's reaction to them and how much she detests them and like showing that whether or not she hates them, like they're a force to be reckoned with. It kind of reminds me of like, uh, what was the one Romero movie like Day of the Dead, whatever, like they're fighting the wars with the zombies instead of humans. Is that is that right? Am I remembering that correct? From Day of I Dead? haven't seen that one. Steve, I feel like you have. Come on. Yeah, it's was it? Um, it's been a while. Of it. Yeah, it's been a while. But yeah, they did fight with the zombies. Yeah. And I, I just kind of thought that it's like, man, like that's what we should see more in fantasy. Like being like, yeah, we got this whole order of of, of like warriors and they're undead. So it's fine. It's all yeah. good. <laughs> zombies being like an economic uh, yeah. issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. yeah. That's definitely. um I, yeah, I, I, I definitely took this writing this book as an opportunity to sort of get down some thoughts that are kind of been brewing in my head, things that are, I guess, anxieties I have or sort of um, topics that are kind of hot, hot, hot in my mind, points of concern for me. Uh, one of those is definitely late capitalism and this uh, move towards uh, uh, automization of labor. Um, that scares the shit out of me and in, in an ideal world which is sadly not the world we live in um jobs being automated manual labor being automated should be amazing it's like oh sweet we don't need to work anymore robots will do this for it and computers will just take care of it and we can just sit around like making art and chilling out and having a good time but, but instead we have uh, the situation we have now so um i yeah that 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 is a big uh point of concern for me in in real life and i guess i yeah i took the revenants as an opportunity to explore that a bit with this idea of like okay well like what if the kind of menial jobs were taken care of what would that look like and that really depends on how this society is structured because it could be a utopian thing or it could be absolutely dystopian and this idea which is i'm something i'm really scared of happening in real life or has even begun to is this idea of up until this point in human history, human beings, the 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 masses, the the proletariat, if you will, have always had this capacity for uh, going on strike. And if they do that, if their work conditions and such are so poor, uh, they can just refuse to do the work, and everything grinds to a halt. And the higher ups, the the the, the monarchy or, or 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 their corporate overlords, have no choice but to sort of uh, parlay with them and 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 negotiate and uh, yeah and and auto automation of labor is going to mean that the working class are going to lose that leverage. They're no longer going to be able to go on strike and that being the kind of ace up their sleeve of like, okay, well, like if you're going to treat us like shit and pay us like shit, we'll just not do the work and society will just like grind to a halt. Very soon, that's not going to be a reality because there will be robots that can do their jobs as substitutes <laughs> or will be doing them in the first place. And then suddenly these people lose like the, the one piece of leverage that they had. And then, and then what's to become of them? And I mean, in the case of, in, in my book, in the Kildarian Empire, these people are just impoverished. Um, they, they start off having like a little sort of, like a, like a UBI type thing, getting these payments. 
which are kind of insufficient and they get smaller and smaller over time. And it comes to a certain point of like, what, what, what would you do? Because yeah. Okay. And in, in this case, in the story, in the case of my book, like a, a, a zombie essentially has taken your job. You can't not do that job to, uh, bargain with your, the, the powers that be anymore. What do you do? Do you get together with some of these rabble with your pitchforks and your whatnot? And do you storm like a government building? Oh, well, that's just surrounded by rows upon rows of utterly fearless, utterly merciless killing machine zombies. So you're just, you're, you're, you're screwed essentially. And, um, yeah, so this was me kind of exploring some like real world anxieties in kind of fiction form. Um, yeah. You can use that so, marketing. You can say author, you know, author fights back against AI with his own story here. <laughs> I mean, it's, <laughs> it paints itself. This is beautiful. Reddit would love it. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Super well done and really unique and has like some horrifying ways you could take it. So I'm, I'm pretty excited to see where that particular plot line goes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there in the next book. That'll, that'll come to a hit. Um, which I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to. Um, it's interesting. There was a, uh, uh, there's a gentleman whose name begins with a, a Z or a Z, as you would say in, in New Zealand parlance, um, and Jimmy's, uh, I've mentioned in the wrong direction. There we go. There's Jimmy, um, in Jimmy's discord, um, who read my book and enjoyed it. But the sense he got from reading the purple prince was that this doesn't exactly represent the story I truly want to tell. And I think that's a fair mm. comment. I feel like mm. so much of what happens in the Purple Prince, I ho hopefully it stands on its own and is just sort of written, you know, adequately and has some dramatic tension and it's just w worth the time it takes to read it. But a lot of it is sort of inciting events for things to come later. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I think my, my suspicion is that this book, though I'm not unproud of it, I think it is going to be the weakest in the series, definitely, because I feel like what it is doing predominantly is uh, setting things up for later, or, or maybe that's a little bit unfair. Maybe it's, it's more that it begins to explore ideas and introduce sort of aspects of the world and of the mythology and these are, you know, they're seeds in the Purple Prince and they're going to be like fruit bearing trees later on. I think that's maybe more fair to say. But uh, yeah, if the things that people liked about Purple Prince are just going to be exponentially more rewarding, I think, hopefully, in, in subsequent books, because all, all of these things that I'm like, okay, uh, yeah, here's dreams and here's prophecies and here's the gods coming back and here's the revenants and stuff like that. They are all sort of in their infancy, these ideas in the first book. And then as the series progresses, they will become, um, I'm going to get dive much deeper into these things. Now that a lot of groundwork has been laid, I can sort of really kind of sink my claws into it and uh, kind of pick it apart and explore it and turn it inside out. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. That's awesome. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. Because I think one of my favorite things about it was like how well the foreshadowing is done and how well like the little pieces and snippets that you get kind of come to fruition and like meticulously set up things that like, I think in Jimmy, your review, it said uh, like, we should have seen some of these things coming uh, just how well they were set up. So yeah, if, mm -hmm. if the purple prince is like that for the rest of the series, that's pretty exciting because your foreshadowing is excellent. And there's I, a I, lot of I, 
that here that like resolves in book one too. Like, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. And turns and uh, yeah. I mean, what, what, what? So, do you hate Ben as a character? Like, did you just want to? <laughs> like, I, I don't understand what your beef is with the, the young man, but he seems like a fine chap to me. But my God, <laughs> I'm cruel. It comes from me having a, a, a real world older brother called Benedict. I've always lived in the shadow, and no, I, I'm, I'm not joking. I do have an older brother called Benedict, and as, as strange as that is, perhaps to have a point of view character named Benedict, that was always the character's name. Again, it's super cheesy, but this idea of like. Mila was always called Mila. Benedict was always called Benedict. That that is just their name. Like it, it just is to me. That it's just like a supposed to people's four kind of scenario. Um, I don't hate Ben, but uh, Ben is a character who I think is he's got a lot of growing up to do during Purple Prince. Like he is, yeah, he's he's, he's for the character that he is to become later on in the series. I think he needs to suffer some some indignities and really kind of be put through the ringer. I feel like that kind of applies to all the characters though. Maybe the Ben, ben chapter is kind of hit hardest for you, Jimmy, perhaps, but I feel like all four of the point of view characters, Mila, Ben, Raywin, and Angelo, I feel like they all kind of suffer a bit. Like they all um, encounter crises and uh, uh, leave the Purple Prince, the book, they leave that with scars both literal and and emotional um that i definitely think will kind of uh shape who they become in, in the subsequent book books um yeah no ben, ben's an interesting character i think for me he's probably my least favorite of the four characters at least at where the purple prince is whether this and as of book one i think ben is is the character i'm uh least i was least enthusiastic about writing but he's the character I am most enthusiastic about writing for book two. Hmm. Um, just based on uh, the trajectory that is maybe hinted at in his final, uh, his final uh, epilogue that you guys read, where he's sort of suddenly, you're not quite sure where in reality he is, but he is alive in some capacity and he has a mysterious mentor and the sky's the limit as as far as it seems so um yeah i think ben ben's going to be really uh I, I think a highlight of 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 book two certainly um yeah moving forward nice does your brother know that that's that character's <laughs> <laughs> honestly yeah no he, he he knows um he actually uh between the book uh, becoming available digitally, like on Kindle and such, and being emailed to um, Kickstarter backers, and it going to physical print. Uh, Benedict's brother of mine, uh, he read the book, and he works as a proofreader for a living uh, for oh, the okay. Finnish government. So um, he uh, bought some errors that I had missed and my editor had missed, despite multiple read-throughs. So uh, yeah, he both knows about being the character and has read this book with a very close eye. So uh, yeah, he's he's well aware. <laughs> uh, question from Mitch: How many Dread Phallus references next book? Um, that's something I think I'm gonna just leave to Baker. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think I'm gonna go there. <laughs> Necromancers get a bad rap for raising a family. Oh, <laughs> uh, that took me a second. Yeah. What What is everyone's favorite setting in this book? 
because we get a lot of really beautiful descriptions about the places that we're going. Like I didn't have any trouble getting immersed in this world. Um, my favorite is Astrio, the cities above clouds. I thought that that was amazing. And like the moon road to get there. I mean, just one of the more cool settings I've read in all fantasy, really. I would wow. agree. Like a, a winter setting that's not really like scary. Uh, you know, maybe it's maybe it's the a Song of Ice and Fire uh, decade long obsession I had. But like, you know, <laughs> the north is, is a scary place. The cold is mm -hmm. dreadful. But in Astria, it's like it's beautiful. There's you know, like northern lights and there's the flowers that bloom in the snow, the purple flowers in the snow. And yeah, mm -hmm. um, the antler people, which, yeah, maybe we can get an answer to Ben's question where the antlers come from. Uh, but yeah, it's it's very like regal and elegant and quiet and still and just like a, a beautiful seeming place. feels very majestic. With, it, with, it kind of reminds me yeah. of the veil a little bit. Like, yeah. you know, Song of Ice and Fire, when I first yeah. read the description of the veil in a Game of Thrones, I was like, oh my God, like that is incredible. Kind of the same vibes that that, that I got from Astria. Mm -hmm. What about you, Steve? Yeah, same, same thing. Astria. Yeah, um, I'm definitely excited to spend more time in Astria um, as a location. Um, that's you're definitely going to get a whole lot more of it. It, it, it is fairly integral to uh, this first book, at least in the beginning, because I mean, of course, the prologue takes place in Astria, and then it jumps right into five Neela chapters back to back, where she's on her way there. So you you definitely get a, a, a hopefully a fairly tantalizing glimpse of the of the place. But um, yeah, I I, I think the way that it's worked out is that each book, not by design, but by some kind of weird consequence or maybe some kind of like subconscious design each book is going to sort of revolve around a different continent so like this mm. first book i think is very kairhalen heavy that's the imperial continent like you have a lot of both angelo and ben are in the imperial capital and then there is the fateful road trip uh, ben and the imperial family going to sunguard and then of course the climax of the book happens in sunguard where all four of the point of view characters and Endymion are all there. Um, so it, it's very Kyrhal and heavy. Um, yeah, book two is going to be very Dernheim heavy. Um, but book three is going to be Estria, Estria centric. And uh, I'm really looking forward to that because, yeah, that aesthetic. Um, I don't know if I could point to a particular real world culture or a real, uh, yeah, a real world culture or like a fictitious. Uh, setting that inspired Astria. I guess it's kind of a, a sort of a, an, a, a, like an amalgam of, of a few different inspirations. But um, yeah, Astria for me, it's kind of, yeah, it, 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 I, I wanted to have like a wintry, snowy setting, but rather than like the wintry, snowy setting being the super dangerous kind of Nordic kind of, uh, you know, like an, an a lot of books like the north is um kind of like the the, the the viking or celtic kind of barbarian place it's pine trees and it's axes and it's blood and it's hearts and it's wolf pelts and it's that kind of vibe i definitely have a lot of that kind of aesthetic going on with jernheim the land of autumn the land of autumn but um with astria yeah i wanted kind of this kind of yeah as you say like regal is, is a nice word to me mm -hmm. um Winter and 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 snow as kind of like a quite a a, a peaceful sort of yeah kind of dream like you know like I, I, not winter in terms of like yeah like white walkers and giant wolves but more winter in terms of like 
I don't know, like a lamppost surrounded by snow, kind of like oh, maybe a little bit more kind of Narnia or something. But um, yeah, as far as the, the maybe, maybe this is just me trying to compensate for my me suffering through Icelandic winters once a year. I'm trying to romanticize <laughs> winter and the cold, um, possibly. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, yeah, as, as far as the antlers go for, uh, our good friend, Ben, who, uh, asked about that a good half hour ago. Um, yeah, the, the, the antlers for me, um, maybe it, uh, came from my favorite TV show of all time is Hannibal. And that's a show with a very wild visual aesthetic and really good, uh, crazy fucking, dream sequences and like hallucinatory sequences and, and quite a lot of those i guess we're getting into hannibal spoilers all of a sudden but um so so hannibal famously is a cannibal and there's a a race <laughs> I, I, is it is it is it a, it's a native american mythological creature the the wendigo right mm -hmm. that is created when a human through perversion or through necessity is either forced to or partakes of human flesh and they become they become kind of shrank like and just permanently disfigured from their consuming of human flesh. Um, yeah. Hannibal appears as a Wendigo in some of these trippy sequences in the show and he has antlers and something about that, that image of just like a humanoid creature with antlers is, is just super evocative for me. I also think of like, um, the black cauldron from that, from that series of books and also from like that, super underrated uh disney film there's there's is his name the horned king i don't know i just I, there's a few pieces of media that i've encountered where there's like a antlered person a, a villain usually and I, I just find it like a super striking uh image um yeah and it, i don't know it just for me it felt kind of weirdly it, it fit the vibe of Estria that I already had going. Maybe it's like the, the antlers kind of curve in a kind of crescent shape. And Estria is all about like the moon and stuff. I don't know. I, I, it's, it's, it's difficult to kind of pick this stuff apart sometimes when it's just been the way it is in my head for, for almost a decade. <laughs> but um, yeah, no. Ant antlers, yeah. I, 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 I lay quite a lot of the blame at Hannibal. But um, yeah, Estria as a location, I'm, yeah. I, I, I really like Estria and I'm looking forward to being there more there's I, I, yeah there's a lot of aspects of this world that i'm super excited to get into because all the time like that i was writing this book i had this personal mission of like this is not going to be a doorstop of fantasy book it's not going to be some big fat you know many hundred even a thousand page volume that's just such a tired thing fantasy books don't need to be that long i really like like a snappy lean aerodynamic fantasy story like like an earth sea novel or something where it doesn't have to be fucking enormous you know like i i i think that we need less of the heavy doorstop stuff and more of the kind of lean thing and i went into being like i'm gonna go for some like yeah really lean fantasy book which has a sprawling world but somehow that is all packed into a neat little package and and then the, the, it just by the end of it, I mean, this thing is 600 pages. Oops. Like, yeah. Oops. Christ. <laughs> well, it, it's a big challenge. It's, it's tough. And that's why, you know, I think Le Guin is a master because somehow she realized Earthsea, you know, and she, she could do it in such a, a brief amount of time. I, I don't think it's an easy thing to do at all. 
I really to don't. crystallize it down to its essence like that. No, because I, I with with like a a, a constant constant uh, overarching goal of having this thing lean, it ended up being as big as it is, and I still feel like there are so many aspects of the world that feel maybe not underexplained, but that like oh wow I didn't get to this, I didn't get to that, I didn't get to you know you know like there's this it, 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 I feel like even in this six hundred page monolith there's so much that i barely brushed upon and mm -hmm. in 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 the world um which is it's frustrating to me that i wasn't able to kind of hack it in there and and kind of liguin style but i guess that's also exciting for me that there's so much for me to sink my teeth into still as a writer and then for, for you guys as, as readers yeah it's definitely exciting as a reader for sure yeah the world does really feel huge and epic and like there's so much to explore it doesn't feel constrained even though like and yeah the book is 600 pages but i think it it does have an aerodynamic sense about it uh i i am a, usually a pretty slow reader and i think I, I blew through this book like i couldn't set it down and um we had kind of a read-along going and we were all chatting amongst ourselves and then realized that we just read another 150 pages and it, <laughs> it went it went fast it's the pacing i think is phenomenal in this book um and i don't think i I don't think, uh, I don't know. I'm not one that usually appreciates like good pacing. I can chill and meander or if something's really fast paced, I don't really mind. But uh, something in The Purple Prince felt like really um, well put together with pacing. Um, mm -hmm. Like the events happened at good times and it was it was always really smooth. There weren't, weren't any lulls, um, but you never felt bogged down in information and the world still felt huge. And like there was still so much to explore. Uh, I was just skimming through like a lot of stuff happened in this book that I've forgotten about since I read it six months ago. Um, Me too. There's a, there's a ton of stuff packed in here. Um, yeah, just, I thought that was really well done how big it is, but how, how it feels like it's, it's just smooth sailing the whole way through. That's, that's such a relief to hear. I, I, I think that is the product of um, me having this like deathly fear of boring the reader at any point or like, not to the point where it's like breakneck pacing and every scene is a fight scene or something like that. But there were quite a lot of chapters I cut where I, I was reading back of them. I've, I've saved them. Like I have them in like a word document called deleted scenes actually on my computer. And it's all <laughs> of the chapters that I just ripped out, you know, root and stem. And uh, I've been reading them back a bit and there's stuff in there that I'm definitely proud of and stuff in there that I think is, it's, it's not bad, but um I guess it, these are the things that would have taken away from what Amanda, you, you called that kind of smooth sailing thing. Like this, this, these would have been lulls with not that they would have been not worth it, but this would have definitely have been the kind of the, uh, the, the roller coaster kind of slowing down to kind of, you know, smell the roses or whatever. Um, I was very afraid of uh, anyone being bored while reading this book. I, 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 it's this kind of double standard where like, I'm a very patient reader, I think, like, uh, up to a point as, as far as like reading stuff, that's very methodical, very slowly paced, very, like not a whole lot is happening. We're just kind of wallowing in world details or we're just character work is being done and not a lot is happening kind of plot wise. And it's not kind of, you know, it's not snappy by any means, but, um, things are still kind of happening. Like I'm, I'm a very patient reader often with stuff like that, but I have this hypocrisy where 
anything that fell under that category for me when I was going over the final manuscript, just, I just ripped it right out. Um, I think that also spilled over into that, that, that philosophy of like, oh, if it's gonna test someone's patience, rip it out. That also uh, applied to the prose a little bit because there were definitely some unhinged, uh, half a page long, uh, Mieville McCarthy inspired run on sentence extravaganzas that um, were so much fun to write. And some of the writing I've been proudest of, and yet they didn't, they ended up on the cutting room floor just because I just hmm. had this concern of like, oh, but what if someone's not into that? Or what if that, what if I'm uh, asking too much? Or, you know, hmm. what if, I, I, I guess it's kind of a fear of sticking my neck out of like indulging myself or, or yeah, my, some of my absolute favorite writers uh, aspire to and achieve that like really extravagant kind of purple prose, which is, I, I guess, quite appropriate for this book. But um, <laughs> people like, yeah, like McCarthy and Mievel and and uh, Nabokov, um, these are writers who have incredibly complex language and incredibly complex sentences. And they, they what they aspire to is some like grandiose kind of Sistine Chapel type shit. Um, I had an honest attempt at emulating that sort of thing. And to remove myself from that arena and not even dare throw my hat in with those guys, I took that stuff out because I thought like, I'm, who am I kidding? Like, I can't even begin to, I, 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 I'm never going to be mentioned in the same breath as these dudes. Why am I emulating their style and, and being as ambitious as them as writers? I should just reel it in and, you know, keep it fairly on a leash. Um, yeah. So at, at the end of the day, this, I, I think this book could have been rather than 600 pages long, it could have been a thousand pages long. It could have been more backstory, more side questy slice of lifey stuff. There could have been some considerably wilder scenes and sentences in there. But I think I was kind of not self sort of, yeah, not like self-censoring, but I, what, what I told myself is I'll do this stuff later. If people like this first book and if people are on board with the story and the characters in the world, once I've kind of hooked them and got you guys kind of, you know, invested, then I can get weird and then I can get ambitious and then I can put my neck out there and attempt something wilder than this. You know, I can, I can put in one of those like, yeah, two page sentences, which is just this crazy run on extravaganza with a bunch of uh a bunch of 50 cent words in there um yeah that that's gonna come later i think i, I it felt too it felt too bold to do it in like a debut self-pub it's like who, who, who am i kidding to aspire to something like that when i'm just some dude hmm. yeah yeah Rachel, you kept that you kept <laughs> You kept the stuff you ripped out. Is that something I should have done? I just deleted it to avoid temptation of re-adding it. Yeah, I kept it. I, I'm a hoarder, though. I, I'm like in, in every conceivable walk of life. I, I could tilt my camera and show you how many like old yogurt and ice cream containers I have just like stacked there in case I need them sometime. I, I, I never <laughs> throw anything away. And if it's something I've written, I'm just like, oh, maybe I'll use this somewhere. 
Um, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I've saved it all. I, there's, there's never anything that I've like dragged to the recycle bin and emptied, and it's just been obliterated from existence. Um, everything, even the stuff that there's stuff I'm really proud of that I've kept, and the stuff that I think is kind of terrible that I, I I've kept too. But I just, uh, I feel like it's part of, it's been part of the journey. It's part of my history. Even if I go back and read it, being like, oh shit, this thing I wrote and like. 2015 is so cringe and I had no idea what I was doing. It's kind of, it's humbling. And um, I can look at it in a kind of like a self-deprecating, like, oh, I'm such a shit right away. Or I can also look at it and be like, if I read that compared to something I wrote five years later, you could see that I have grown at least somewhat as a writer. And it's, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm never going to throw that stuff away. I don't know if I'll ever make it uh, publicly accessible in any way, but um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. I'm 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 not going to show it anytime soon though. Uh, Mitch says, "Did you feel like DJ Khaled saying another one with every epilogue you wrote?" <laughs> See, that's the thing. Okay, um, that that's one one area in which I, I had an instinct to rein myself in, and I didn't and couldn't. And that was with the, the epilogues. Uh, anyone who's read this book, I hope everyone watching at this point has read it because we've gotten into all sorts of spoilers. But um, this book has four epilogues. Which is, like sure i mean come on dude like that's like 50 pages but like i felt like once that moment had happened okay at this point if anyone hasn't read the book to, through to the very end just stop watching but okay here we go at the point where the the the, the titular character the purple prince dies that felt like the end of the book and the start of the, the epilogues like that felt like the kind of the climax had climaxed and anything after that is kind of just like denouement kind of uh sort of sweeping up the, the carnage and the ashes kind of stuff um yeah and i felt like i owed it to each of these four point of view characters to have once that huge event had happened um and you know shit had gone down at this wedding i felt like i <laughs> For the character's sake, and for my own sake, and for the reader's sake as well, to kind of stay in this and be like, well, why do I keep reading? Like, we're, we're from here. We're two from here. I wanted to kind of give each of these characters a send-off, um, both the sort of like a taking stock of what the fuck just happened, like what happened to them as a character in the previous 600 pages, and also the we're two from here thing. And that's what I was really excited about because, yeah, again, both for the reader's sake and for my own, I wanted to hint at at least what comes next for each of these for each of these characters i felt like um i i like you you could have maybe gotten away with just having raywin's epilogue which is the the first epilogue like that's like right after Endymion dies it cuts to her standing there with his blood dripping down her wrist um being like oh my god like the old world I knew, the old life, like it is super dead. It died with him. Like, what happens next? Like, I could have possibly gotten away with just leaving there. But um, as far as the other characters go, I feel like, yeah, Mila deserved, as a character who started the book, having left her real, like her childhood home, never to return, and on her way, searching uncertainly through peril for a new home, I felt like she deserved a homecoming kind of chapter. And for all of the suffering and the indignities that she had suffered throughout the book, um, 
you know, she spent a whole, Lamila spent a whole lot of time of this book in captivity, which is something on reflection I'm not thrilled about, but it kind of, I guess it served its narrative purpose, but I think she deserved kind of like an optimistic homecoming chapter. Um, Angelo, yeah, I think if I cut from where Angelo was left off, having fled into the night, having killed both uh, Ariel and Benedict, according to, like, as far as Angela knew, leaving it there would have just been um, super bleak. And also uh, you wouldn't really know what the hell would happen next for that character. Um, and again, like I, I really wanted to uh, give some sense of what comes next. Um, and then for Ben also, like if, if I didn't include Ben's epilogue, I feel like as far as anyone knew, Ben was dead and that was it. Maybe that would have been a bigger, better twist for book two when it turns out he's not, but I don't know. I, um, that scene when he's inside the sword of heaven and he is communicating with this Baldurick dude and they're sitting there having this conversation about like, yeah, you almost died, but like, you're, you're not dead and like your story doesn't end here like you're destined for greatness you're not like the, the there's this potion called the wrath of the gods that didn't kill you like you're not going to be a victim of that like you're going to be above the gods you're going to be like the next level like i i, I yeah i i i really did want to write that stuff and kind of set up book two in a lot of ways because i don't know how much i've revealed on discord and stuff but like uh full disclosure Book two happens 17 years after book one. Hmm. There's a huge time jump um, from this book to the next one. And I feel like without that kind of uh, indication of where the story is headed, that time jump would have just been too much. It would have been too wild to have kind of like a cut to black cliffhanger type inconclusive ending to book one and then when you pick up book two being like oh is ben alive what's up with angelo did he make it out of sun garden mila is she just like damaged beyond repair or like what, what's going to happen next like um it, it it really needed that kind of uh these characters to get this kind of like trampoline bounce towards where they are going given that where they are going as far as like the reader's gonna know is is really far away like, like chronologically like yeah um yeah as yeah as i said book two is going to happen 17 years later and uh of course all of these characters are going to just about double in age and there's going to be three new point of view characters uh who weren't born at the time of the purple prince and uh yeah i think the epilogues are an, an essential bridge between uh, Purple Prince and that enormous 17 year chasm and then Pale Lady. Without that, it would just be too much to ask of a reader, I think, to, to, to jump like that. Hmm. Uh, and Garrick, I am glad that the death fake out as in this is in this book instead of beginning of the next book was a great touch. Okay, I would agree. I'm really glad we got a Ben epilogue. Because uh, as soon as everything happened with Ben, the whole the rest of the book is like, I got to know what happened to this guy. So I'm glad we got some resolution and also, uh, yeah, huge intrigue for where that's going to go and yeah. uh, propel Ben to the next level. Um, not that I didn't like him as a character. Uh, I, I really like Ben as a character. I like the like hesitant air um, 
and his horrible dad. Uh, that dynamic <laughs> was fun to read. And then, yeah, just the, the awful, what he ended up dealing with at the end with his sister. Um, yeah, it's exciting to see where he's going to go. Yeah, I think it gives him a good a good arc in book one, knowing that there's still more to come. Um, I, I think it was important to do that. And definitely if you start out book two with like a fake out death, it's it's a big bridge. Like it, It's hard for me to get across that gap. I, I, I yeah. tend to not like these things. There's been a couple authors that have done it that have worked for me, but I don't think I've ever liked it. I think it's been non-offensive in some circumstances. So I was happy to see that, um, that epilogue. I think it's um, the way I'm going to do it because, like, I, I think if a character dies or at least appears to die, as far as everyone else is concerned within the story, um, there needs to be some, when they get reintroduced, there needs to be some uh, kind of psychic distance. They need to reappear as a bit of a stranger, like, you know, the way that Gandalf reappears. Yes. And he's kind of just this like uh, imposing silhouette and then it finally resolved and it's like, Oh shit, it's him. Like, you know, they, they, they need to, they need to come back into the story after their fake out death as a stranger. I think that's the most natural way for that to go. Um, and the way I've done it now is instead of having a fake out death happening in book two, Ben is going to be reintroduced in book two, but the first time we see him will not be from his point of view it will be from the point of view who someone another character is dreaming and their dream is seen through ben's eyes so it's going to have this depersonalization mm. of where they're they're going to be a man and they're going to be wandering around and they're going to see their hands and what they're doing and what they're accomplishing and, da, 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 da. and over the course of that dream sequence chapter it's going to be revealed to the reader that this is benedict kildarian and i think because the, the fake out happened in the first book, I had to do something for that distance. Because if I, if I just gave him the 17 year leap forward treatment, he'd be at the same level of removal from the reader as all the other characters are. That's I think right. he needed an additional resurrection type. He, he needed to be alienated a little bit. So I, I'm, I'm, I've, I'm, I've done it like that where, uh, yeah, he's gonna first show up through another person's eyes and then we get a Ben chapter. Uh, the bee's knees, I would have been so sad not to know at the end that he was okay. He's my favorite character. That's right, bees. <laughs> I think I think Ben's my favorite as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think it would have been too kind of wannabe tryhard edgelord grimdark if both Ben and Ariel both died. I think that's just kind of like... <laughs> Yeah, that's just kind of too sadistic, and like even even though like the as far as anyone's concerned, they are both dead. Like in, in this world, like and like Leric, his father, is certainly spinning this as a I just lost both of my kids. Can you like forgive me for being a tyrant? Because now I'm just a grieving dad. Can you just like pull it with the anti-imperial sentiment? Like it's it's definitely po politically being used as though they are both dead. But like I think if they were both legit dead, I just I don't know. I I, I yeah. And, and again, like Ben, all of these characters are, are in it for the long haul. They are all like this. They, they are the story as far as I'm concerned. Um, hmm. Again, I, I keep reverting to these 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 pretentious cliches, but like I, I, I feel like I know these characters so well and they just kind of came to me. Like I just, 
yeah and and that sense of like the story just writing itself like i just like okay oh there's a girl her name is mila definitely she's from a place called vala i don't know what vala is yet but like we'll get there but she is and then there's this character he's definitely called benedict there's no question and these characters are going to be like the through lines of the whole thing and though the world around them is going to be changing dramatically and there's going to be all sorts of wild sequences and revolutions and upheavals and conflict and what have you it's ultimately going to come down to these these four are going to be carrying it through they're, they're the constants throughout so uh yeah they were they were always going to be it and through to the end uh, I liked God Hand Apostle esque that got revealed near the end. Are we talking? Oh yeah. So they, they it's something that I, I I briefly foreshadowed earlier in the book that uh, there are these five gods: um, Raphael, Dern, Anatsu, Nareil, and Emma. And in the beginning, way 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 back when. Um, before the world was made, before the river dream existed, um, they, to triumph over the void and like the portions of chaos, they had to face like shadow versions of themselves. So like, Anatsu uh, is like the embodiment of like love and honor, and she had to fight like hatred. And then Raphael, who is the embodiment of maybe I should show up these these images while I'm doing it, just so this isn't just a bunch of proper nouns and bullshit. But um, Raphael here, he's like the god of wisdom and intelligence. He had to fight against the, the this like evil god of madness and and lies. And then um, Dern, who's the god of like uh, hospitality, generosity, selflessness. He had to fight against the god of avarice. Um, Nireil, who's the god of like fortitude and like um, like uh peace pe like 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 uh emotional peace like she's like the god of like fortitude and uh hope i suppose and she had to fight against like the god of like fear and misery and then who who we lived here yeah nemeth the god of uh justice and mercy had to fight against the god of uh cruelty and vengeance so yeah they all had like they were these kind of radiant godlings and the void so they were like these bright flames and the things they were fighting were the shadows that they cast um and i briefly mentioned them i believe it's when mila has first gotten accepted into the fallen and she's wandering around the fortress and she's like uh running her hand along like um some like relief on the wall some like uh etching from long ago from the, the times of yore and it's a scene that's depicted there of the five gods fighting the five anti-gods essentially the five no gods if you will um and uh yeah and then later on it's revealed um that there are a group of religious zealots in the present who worship these guys and they're trying to uh bring them into reality they're trying to they, they, they keep talking about like this thing called the last midnight which is like this kind of apocalypse type scenario where they will successfully summon these five anti-god things into reality you know they won't be out in chaos anymore where they've been trapped for eons they'll be they will have breached the ramparts of the river dream and they will be here on the ground with the mortals to wreak havoc and burn it all to the ground um that was it yeah, i very briefly kind of touched on that but then yeah, yeah you have that sequence with carmen and there's like the cathedral and 
what I was trying to do there was like set up this as like this this is important this is going to come into play later like these behind the scenes unbeknownst to anyone else these dudes have been again like the consult or something like slowly working on their shit these little pet projects up there tinkering away in the shadows and uh yeah that that egg is going to hatch essentially so um yeah I'm glad Mitch like that because that's that's some of the stuff when I was talking about the aspects of this world and story that I didn't get to in these 600 pages that's a big part of like okay you've got mila and the fallen and adrana and and like these the cultists who worship like the good gods but then you also have the antithesis of that but I, I, again that was also me one, one thing i'm really interested in and i really enjoy about oh. oh sorry i, I think you're you lost me for a second there no you're absolutely still okay yeah cool. you're good um one thing that I really like about uh, reading fictional worlds is the kind of um, multiplicity of belief when uh, there is a single reality, you know, there's a single state of affairs and there's a bunch of different people have different perspectives on it. And I, I, I really wanted to tap into that with this idea of like these different factions who, who hold very, very contrary beliefs about the same thing. So like you have the fallen who view the gods as good and mortals were wrong and evil to kill them and usurp them, we should bring them back. And then you have people like the Kildarians, they're not atheistic, but they're anti-theistic. They, they believe in the gods, they just don't like them very much. And they believe that no, the gods were cruel and that's like the ultimate tyranny to be ruled by the people that made you. Um, we should uh, do the existential species thing of moving out of home and like yeah kill them and just rule ourselves and like yeah the golden ages and in the past something that we return to the golden age is the future let's develop technology enough where we take their creation and we improve upon it and then i also yeah it was it was inspired by this i was like okay but what if there's like a third i, I guess there's a fourth the third one is angelo suggests in that meeting with rosalind where he's like what if it's all a lie what if like the gods aren't real they're not good or evil they just aren't a thing they're, they're just like a useful fiction for the Kildarians to like justify the regime but then there was this fourth one where i was like okay but what if the gods are evil but for a different reason and then yeah so that the whole black church thing is it, it, it's it's kind of nihilistic it's just this idea of like what if non-existence is the natural state of affairs of just void is just how things originally were that's just like the organic natural shape and any attempt to cultivate that chaos and have order have have existence have any sort of creation is a uh is is rebellion is a um aberration or it's like a you're, you're disfiguring the natural order you're disrupting the natural order to to build something um i find that like an interesting perspective this idea of like maybe the universe wasn't meant to happen as it did maybe mm. humans weren't meant to exist you know like and 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 yeah i, I don't mean in like some like super like fake deep emo way like i just mean like like existentially <laughs> like maybe i don't know like may, maybe maybe the like the natural or like at first there was nothing and then according to the second law of thermodynamics eventually there'll be nothing again maybe that's that just that dreamless sleep that just like state of zero is just where 
things are supposed to be. And I guess that really casts any kind of human endeavor, anything we're doing in the kind of the meantime as ultimately futile. And I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think if, if all that human endeavor and human life is, is just like this brief glimmer bookended by just like darkness. I think that makes it almost more beautiful in a way that it's it's such a such a stark contrast, such a fleeting thing. But um, yeah, I I I I really wanted to like because yeah, as I said, like when I was studying Greek myth, I, I came up with this cosmogony of this world, of these 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 gods and this order and chaos giving rise to creation and yada yada yada. And I just wanted to have as many perspectives on that uh, state of cosmic affairs as possible people rooting for all sorts of different things um yeah I'm, i might have gone overboard in that respect but um i yeah i i i definitely wanted it to feel as though every possible uh kind of prescription that you could get from this world had kind of been explored like there will be people that are rooting for a people are rooting for b people are rooting for c and d um but yeah, I, I, again, that's something that is more touched upon in this first book than delved into, and that's that's all coming later. Hmm. Uh, Benjamin, this is all pretty rad. I gotta say, reading like a hundred fantasy books a year can make it all the worlds blend together. But yours absolutely, absolutely stands out. Oh, thanks, Ben. Very unique. Yeah, I think it's also pretty realistic to have people who have all those questions in your world. I think a lot of times it's usually A and B with maybe a C, right? Like an A, B view. And then there's like maybe one outsider. And even that's pretty rare. So to see like multiple upon multiple ways that people view these gods and, and their their myth, right, of creation is pretty, pretty awesome. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I am. Um... I, I, I deliberately set up like that, like that, that's something I really like in, in fantasy and it's something I've really enjoyed in yeah, various works. There's sort of that a ambiguity of prophecy, the idea that these words can be interpreted in many different ways based on how you approach them or what you want, you read what you want to read. So like this thing of like the pale lady, right? Like that's Lumian, the mother of gods reincarnated. She's going to be green of eye and pale of skin. She's going to, you know, vanquish tyranny and set free her children the the fallen the, the religious sect of this world that Mila becomes a member of they believe that their leader is the pale lady but the kildarians their their opponents in every respect their ideological opponents and their material opponents um they also make this weird claim where like they are anti-theistic and they think the gods fucking suck but like they also <laughs> claim that they're the first emperor, the one who vanquished the gods and established the empire, uh, Florence Gildarian, they claim that she was actually Pale Lady too. And she was coming back to life, this divinity reborn in mortal form. They are simply to say divinity is over. Mortals, you you, you rule the roost now. It's it's over to you guys. She, she re reincarnated simply to pass the torch, to pass the torch and to denounce her children. And then something that... Uh, I hinted at in that chapter that Mitch mentioned in the little comment that popped up before with this kind of God hand apostle thing. Um, the leader of that, uh, that there he goes with this Inkaroi and Kellis <laughs> cuddling. Inkaroi playing the big spoon. I like that. 
um, uh, the thing that was touched on in that prologue, sorry, that, that, that epilogue rather, um, that uh, the leader of the black church, uh, Father Ilian, um, he sees Carmen, this little girl, this little horned half Dernick, half Estrian girl, he sees her and he's like, oh, wow, you barely bleed a color at all. Like you're, you're leading off very little emotional personality. You're just like this traumatized husk, but like, you've got green eyes. Oh, you've got pale skin. Hmm. <laughs> so like, he also has this idea of like, oh, maybe the pale lady is the friends we made along the way. Maybe the pale lady is just like, that prophecy is just like a set of, um, uh, of conditions to be met. And like, hey, if I produce, like what we need to do is like go to the certain location and say these certain words and then the prophecy is fulfilled. I'll just get any old gal who's got green eyes and pale skin. And if she's bent to my will and she's representing my interests, maybe she can just fit the bill. You know, she meets the criteria. Mm -hmm. hmm. Um, yeah, again, that's just like these ambiguous prophecies or like people interpreting prophecies in scripture for super selfish, self-serving reasons is uh, something I really like in, in literature and in fantasy. And uh, yeah, I wanted to go all the way down that road here. Yeah. I dig it. Yeah, and then having uh, the magic system based on like the values of whatever god you're trying to... Uh, mm -hmm. I guess use the powers of and the way that like emotions tie into that and uh in order to use a certain kind of magic you have to suppress or like really feel different kinds of emotions and then how uh that might be affected by how you believe um how people that don't believe in these gods might use different kinds of magic how maybe it's all like any interpretation might be true because you have the river dream that it seems like some sort of like reality busting like <laughs> multi-dimensional something <laughs> so, yeah a lot of possibility for things to go some interesting places yeah we're gonna need more than books yeah <laughs> yeah they're coming you got that, you got that driver's number yeah <laughs> yeah please set set me up run, run me down um but no i like recently i've uh yeah i've really been um, on the uh, the input rather than the output. So I thought, like, before I write another book, um, I want to get to some series that I've been meaning to. So, like, mm. since uh, writing this book, I've read a bunch of standalones. I've read a bunch of fantasy and sci-fi and, and literary fiction. I've read a couple big series. Um, I finished uh, Second Apocalypse and The Dark Tower, both in the last couple of weeks. Um, wow. That's part of why I needed to uh, skim this in the hour before the stream and kind of refresh is because uh, I I was kind of I was rusty on my own writing. It just uh, <laughs> I, I've been on Safari and so many other people's worlds, and I've spent so much time with other characters other than my own that I was just like, yeah, I, I couldn't quite remember what happened, or or, or I, I could remember what happened, but I couldn't remember where this book ends and like. I couldn't remember what's in this book and what isn't because it's all in my head, all five books worth and all, you know, all this sprawling story, this convoluted mess is all, it's all up here and also in kind of note form on my computer. But I can't remember, I, I, I couldn't remember what I actually included in the novel, what I hinted at and what is just completely still to come. So I thought I owed it to you guys and anyone else who <laughs> may be watching to uh refresh in case i spoil the whole series or something <laughs> say the wrong name and oh shit that's what happens yeah 
Um, but speaking of uh, the rest of the series, book two and onwards, um, this is quite indulgent of me, but I, I'd love to hear if you guys have any uh, any any theories of of, of, of what's to come. Hmm. I don't necessarily have any theories, but I'm extremely interested in where Angelo goes from here. Um, and then the end of his epilogue, I remember him seeing something kind of being like spelled out and it went, went a couple of different ways and it came back down to, to his name and, uh, Riscurio? Let me look. I can't remember the exact. Thank you. Um, so I don't have any theories about that, but something's going on there. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What about yeah, you, Amanda? I can't, I can't think of any theories. Um, again, I want to know what's behind that door in that tavern with like mm. the weird, the weird noises and the mystery there. Um, I think there's like a whole untapped Lovecraftian side of this that we've barely seen the surface of, um, especially with uh, Mila's dream. And I think there's like a guy crawling into a griffin or, uh, and I, I think that's, the king king Larrick, and trying to do something with his dead question mark wife um so i think there's a lot more behind the royal family than we know about and a lot more to Larrick than we know um so i'm really excited for all of that but as for theories i'm terrible with terrible Same. theories Same. <laughs> malaz and ruined my theory my theory ability i can't do theories anymore <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm most uh, curious about what's next for Benjamin is what I'm looking forward to, where his journey takes him. Mm -hmm. Benny boy. Yeah, I, I think I'm most excited for Ben. Um, I, I'm excited for all these characters, honestly. Um, I, 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 yeah, I, I stand by that statement I made earlier that I think this first book, I'm proud of it, and I think it's, 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 it's all right, but I think it's going to be the weakest of the five if I hopefully end up finishing the series if i end up writing and re releasing them all someday in the future um i think this is going to be the sort of uh yeah this is going to be the sort of introductory tale maybe a bit of fun on on you know standing on its own but also largely sort of planting seeds for things to bear fruit later mm -hmm. um yeah I'm, I'm really excited for for what comes next i just uh yeah hope i get there it's uh it's difficult to find the time to write um like I, I mentioned in my little intro at the start of the stream um father of two and uh yeah just working and living and uh yeah it's there's only only so many hours in the day so it's uh can, can be difficult to find find the time to, to to write but um yeah i am i'm very passionate about this 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 whole thing it is it's my baby as well it's my my third child um i uh yeah really yeah, I don't, I don't have any delusions about, um, you know, making a living doing this or anything like that. Uh, but it's a story that uh, I've had in my head for a long time, a story I really want to tell. And yeah, hopefully I uh, get it all out there one day and uh, fingers crossed someone even reads it. So uh, yeah, we'll see. Awesome. And what days are you most out in public? So we can tell our guy. <laughs> oh, um, Wednesdays are pretty good. Yeah, Wednesdays are Wednesdays good. Work? Okay, good. We'll, we'll to run on. me down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mitch Angela is going to start a, a skooma cartel, but keeps getting high on his own supply. Rookie move. <laughs> uh, 
Oh, wait, are the skooma those dudes, the, the, the feline creatures from Elder Scrolls? Yeah, the uh, like the drug in Elder Scrolls. <laughs> skooma. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. No, Mitch may or may not be onto something there. We'll see. <laughs> okay. Uh, prediction. Raywin is going to find herself in yet another love quadrangle. Oh. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> Raywin. She was a, a source of some some pretty funny stuff in this book. Some more of the lighthearted, like not love triangle, but just oh messy. And I, yeah. I love a I love a messy girl to read about. So Raywin needs to learn how to love herself. Okay, that, that's that's what we need from Ray. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That that girl just needs to um, stop looking for. Uh, fulfillment in other places and other people like even begins like in the first Raywin chapter um yeah r honestly Raywin's my favorite character um both as of the purple prince and for the series as a whole as i have conceived of it um yeah but uh i begin that first Raywin chapter she is standing on her balcony and gazing out longingly at the world beyond the horizon and thinking like oh there's something missing in here, man, and it's out there somewhere, man, and I just need to go out and find it, man. And uh, I think that that outward searching, fumbling around, looking for uh, for your fulfillment elsewhere, I think maybe she just needs to look on the inside, you know, maybe, 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 maybe her, her, her love and happiness is, is, is right at home where she left it. I don't know. We'll see. Looking forward to you have to let us know when the, the Kickstarter for book two is gearing up and ready to go. Yeah, I'll uh, hopefully have, as I, as I mentioned, I'll hopefully have someone else to take care of that whole mess for me to run the social media and do the kind of the ones and zeros part of it. I'll just I'll just worry about the, the dream sequences and the prophecies and whatnot. Nice. Well, thank you so much for, for coming by and for chatting with us about your about your work. Oh, absolute pleasure. Thank you guys so much for, for doing this. Yeah, this is a blast and uh, I'm ready for book two. <laughs> Very ready for we'll too. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure. Watch your no, back, Sebastian. <laughs> I think a hit on collision is going to do the most damage and put me like in a kind of like uh, hospital bed riding situation for the longest. So uh, yeah, it'll just... just be your right hand. Just that'll be just enough so you can pin. <laughs> Oof. that's I'm a lefty as well. So. Damage. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll make sure he knows it's your left. That's fine. <laughs> Uh, before we go, uh, Amanda, can you tell us where to find you in uh, your channel? Sure. Yeah, I'm at uh, Shelf Unstable, just like it is in the name. Um, and that's pretty much it. I don't have Twitter. I don't have anything else. So just come see me on YouTube, Shelf Unstable. Yes. And Jimmy? Do you ever sit and wonder to yourself, what is my next best <laughs> fantasy read? How do I figure out of all these books? What I should read next? Well, I have the answers for you right over at the Fantasy Network. Uh, I am Jimmy Nuts, of course, and I'll be your host over there. And I have all sorts of reviews uh, that you can check out in the long bookish content. So go over there and hit subscribe and join the party. Is that good? Is that fine? That was can I redo impressive. mine? That's a shame. I'm impressed. Damn. Wow. That was the best one yet. Wow. Perfect. You even looked away and everything was wow. Sometimes you got to bring it, you know? Yeah, impressive. <laughs> 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 wow. Yeah, that was uh, good. Impressive. Yeah.
<laughs> so, I, I hate to have you go after Jimmy because it's hard to top that, but can you let us know where to find you too? <laughs> um, yeah, well, um, I have a, uh, a Goodreads uh, uh, author profile. If you find the Purple Prince on Goodreads, um, you can click my name there somewhere um, and you'll find me. I, I'm, I'm going to post updates, anything relating to the future of the series, whether it's a Purple Prince audiobook or whether it's updates on the next books in the series, um, that'll all be there. I also have a Facebook page called uh, The River Dream Series. Um, check that out. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'll just uh, probably post on those two channels uh, predominantly with any 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 juicy tidbits on, uh, yeah, any, any, any up, up, upcoming upcoming stuff. I think we're going to get a Purple Prince audiobook hopefully in the next little while. And then, um, yeah, it'll be news about the the pale lady kickstarter campaign so uh yeah fantastic watch the space watch your back <laughs> yeah. and my front yeah. keep an eye on those kneecaps yes yeah. cool well thank you all so much for coming and and chatting about the purple prince today really appreciate all of your time and thanks to everyone who showed up in the chat it always makes it a great experience when people interact and uh, participate in the in the conversation so We'll see everyone soon. We'll keep, keep your eyes out for that Kickstarter campaign. Hopefully it'll be sooner rather than later. We'll, uh, we'll do our part. Thanks again, everybody. Thanks, yeah. Thanks. Bye.